Um, thank you everyone for joining. Uh, welcome to the A16Z Bio Clubhouse Room, where we cover the future of bio and healthcare with, um, with awesome people from the broader ecosystem. I'm Julie Yu, one of the general partners here at Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, with me are my A16Z Bio partners and, and colleagues, um, Vinita Agarwala, Jorge Conde, and Venkat Richella. And uh, today we are graced with the presence of three um, amazing friends and people and, and founders. Um, the four of us have been sort of like a support group for each other as we've uh, both celebrated and commiserated about building companies in the healthcare space over, over the course of many, many years. Um, but these are our three founders who started companies in sort of the 2010, 2011 era of, um, of digital health, even before the, the phrase digital health technically existed. And um, we look forward to hearing all about their their origin stories, um, you know, just the journey that that they've been on for the last ten years, and and what their take on the current state of the digital health market is. Um, so, just a quick note for those in the crowd: uh, this conversation is being recorded. So later on, when I hand it over to my partner Venkit to uh, open it up to the crowd um, to come up on stage and ask questions, uh, please know that by doing so you are consenting to us using your words and your profile image in recordings related to this event. Um, and we will have an after party that starts at 6 p.m. I think all three of our guests are gonna be really, uh, able to, to stick around for a little bit after that. So um, those of you who can stay late, uh, we'd love to have you, um, have you jam with our guests. So why don't we go ahead and um, let our guests introduce themselves. So I'm gonna ask each one to say, you know, who you are, uh, what's your company, um, how long have you been in the business of healthcare startup land? And uh, what was the original product and the original go-to-market motion for your business when you first got started? So why don't we start with uh, Sean? All righty, happy to. Well, uh, you know, Julie, team, so uh, yeah, huge thanks for hosting this. It's, um, we had a little kind of pre-room here, and it was already fun to reminisce on some of the stories. So I, I'm really excited for the next hour. So I'm Sean Duffy. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Omada Health. I've um, uh, been in the business of healthcare startups for almost 10 years, which is pretty wild to say. Uh, founded the company um, really with a mission to uh, bring interventions uh, forward for people with pre-diabetes. So uh, that was the original product that remains the biggest product line of Omada today. Um, the go-to-market motion for the business early on uh, was actually uh, towards self-insured employers. Once I found out what a self-insured employer was, I think prior to Omada, uh, I was in medical school, so I really knew nothing about the business of the U.S. healthcare system. So I, we, I, you know, I think, relatively speaking, we've stayed pretty consistent from a go-to-market standpoint. But of course, uh, as time has passed, added more services. Amazing. We will double-click on all of that in a second. Um, how about uh, Karin? Why don't you go next? Sounds good. Uh, hey, everybody. This is Karin Singh, co-founder, chief operating officer at Ginger, an on-demand mental health clinic. Um, have been on this adventure, like Sean, kind of incredible, over 10 years now. Technically, I was I was an intern at Humedica uh, prior to, to joining Ginger, so so that was technically 2010. So now maybe 11 years. Um, have had some twists and turns in our story and our journey over the years, for sure. Um, original sort of premise or thesis for the company was really um, – Digging into this concept that there is no blood test for your depression or easy way to measure stress. And it turns out you can use data, you can collect passively off of a smartphone to predict stress and anxiety. So we, for the most part, we're selling into large um, provider systems, community health clinics uh, across the country, and then uh, went from selling to providers to becoming one. 
uh, back in, in 2015, 2016 now, uh, and uh, have been scaling that um, ever since. So pleasure to be here. Yes, you were one of the heroic startups that went from platform to full stack. So um, let's definitely come back to that. And then last but not least, Chris. Great. Well, thanks, everybody. It's going to be fun uh, to be here with, with all this group. Um, so I've been doing startups for about 10 years. I started uh, my, the first company, my first company, uh, 100 plus, I guess 100 plus the first, um, back in 2011. And so that was uh, very much an app designed for behavior change, trying to can, uh, help people stay motivated to do small, healthy things in their life um, that was going to lead to larger and better things. You know, back then, that was sort of the first wave where we were going to use, you know, real good consumer design and engagement to help people be healthy. And, and it was super fun. But uh, what was the original go-to-market? You know, that, that turned out to be the problem. Um, there wasn't really a good one. And we didn't really think a lot about it, to be honest. I uh, thought that we were going to build, you know, a consumer-type company, uh, acquire a lot of patients and then, or a lot of users, and then figure out how to monetize them. But we ended up then moving into corporate wellness uh, which was the most direct to what we were doing. Um, and if anyone's doing corporate wellness, I'm sorry, because it was, it was rough. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I also, then I have, I have two companies I'll talk about, um, over the course of tonight, but then I moved over to propeller, uh, where I was for the last six years or so in both the uh, chief operating officer and chief commercial officer role. And there, the original, um, go, go to market motion was going to providers. We were going to try to sell this sensor now what would be a remote patient monitoring solution to, to providers and then went through a, through payers and pharma and eventually back to, to large health systems when RPM became uh, more uh, reimbursable. Awesome. Um, so we'll come back to like the go-to-market piece. I think that's um, a super interesting part of, of all of your stories. But why don't we go back to you know the way beginning when you guys were, were first getting started um, you know, obviously we're right now living through one of the most incredible times for startup financing um, that I've certainly ever seen and that I think, you know, many have, have ever seen. Um, but it wasn't always like this, guys. Um, if you, you think back to, you know, 10 years ago when you were raising your first rounds of capital, talk to us about like, what was the financing landscape like back then? Um, and, and maybe even, you know, before that, like, was it a no brainer that you guys would actually raise venture capital to fund your business or, had you guys thought about other means to get your company off the ground and funded? Um, and you know, what were some of the criteria that you thought about as you were evaluating the, the various potential backers um, you know, back in your early days in terms of things like healthcare expertise versus tech, you know, consumer versus enterprise, things of that sort? Um, tell us uh, some of your, your early war stories from, from early financing back in uh, 2011. Anyone can feel free to jump in first. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll go, I, I you know, it so this was 2011. Um, and so starting, you know, talking to people or fundraising, I guess, in 2010. And I, I was a, you know, a, a guy who worked in pharma, who, you know, read a lot of TechCrunch and Moby Health and wanted to jump into this. And, um, and so I was able to, you know, get funding right then it was all there was a lot of seed rounds happening. There was a lot of excitement around you know, digitization of health and bringing consumer and design and and all of this in, into into healthcare, and it was going to transform like other industries. So when I remember it, it there was quite a lot of companies being funded, you know, not relative to today, but back back then there were none. You know, you're reading stuff from 20, 
2007 through 10, and there's like very, very few. And then all of a sudden there was this kind of what we thought then was a boom in 2010 and 11. And I, I, me personally, I didn't think a lot about expertise at all. I, I was, I, I assumed it was going to be VC because that, that was like what I read. Um, and that's what I thought, you know, how you did it and didn't think of other paths at all, really. And, and I didn't think a lot about uh, the expertise. I ended up lucking into the, the investors for 100 plus. And um, it was a guy named John Lilly from Greylock, who was really consumer and really tech. And I had that vision for really consumer, really tech. I was working farm, as I said, and I was super sick of healthcare. Um, and so I ended up going there and it was, it was pretty, you know, straightforward. There was a lot of like good ideas there and people wanting to fund them. So I think on the seed side, it, it ended up that crashed, you know, later, two years later, you know, there was a bad series, a crunch where, where we got crushed and a bunch of people got crushed, but I'd be curious other people, how, how they remember that era. Yeah, I can, I can jump in. So, uh, you know, similar to you, Chris, I, you know, I think we wanted to go down the VC path because the path we read, you know, read about and always from day one had pretty, pretty big ambitions. And it seemed like that if you wanted to make a big difference, that's the path that you went on. Um, you know, my reflection relative to the early days of financing the business is that it was pretty clear that funds that you talk to or partners that you talk to sit in one camp or the other, it was the tech or the healthcare. And you'd, you'd, you'd kind of, in a funny way, go from one pitch to the other, where you'd be, you know, talking with the tech firm, and they'd say, "Oh, that you know, this is, you know, really neat. You know, no way one of the big plans is going to build something like this." And then you'd go to the next and be in, you know, healthcare-oriented firms, like, "Oh my gosh, well, this is software, isn't one of the plans immediately going to build this?" So I think it was a world where um, uh, there were two different camps. At least that was what I what I felt, but a lot of interest at what what convergence might look like. And I think for many of our early investors at Armada, we were either the first actual proper healthcare investment that they made or the first actual proper tech investment that they made, which I think was a sign of the times back in 2011. Yeah, Sean, I, I love that. I think it's the, that, that whiplash was, was so true uh, from the, the tech investors. I, I, I was trying to find this quote someone had sent me back in 2011. It was this back of deck, front of deck analogy, the, the idea that you know, the, the, the tech investors, quote unquote, were all, they started in your first two or three, they focused on your first two or three slides. You, you couldn't get through your, you know, more than really your mission or your vision. And the healthcare investors were all back of deck slides, which was all about financial numbers, metrics. And, you know, we, we, we found that to some degree, certainly, um, uh, you know, what, one of our early investors true, um, in, in some ways it kind of, uh, connected the, the two. They were they had been early at, at Fitbit at the time, and and so uh, that was sort of the, their their first foray into starting to get into the wellness space, and and had made a couple of other investments. Um, but it it was challenging. I, I mean, at least talking truthfully on on, on our end, um, you know, certainly because there wasn't great precedence here. And because at, at first we thought we actually were going to be able to raise less, but quickly realized, I think maybe Sean, similar to what you were describing, these are just capital intensive businesses. They, they, they're bigger swings. They, they take longer, they cost more. And so I think we learned that through the process. I think we originally had, you know, maybe a, a lighter, uh, lighter target on how much we were going to eventually, eventually, um, raise. And, um, <laughs> the world has changed all that, Julie. I think, like you said, I mean, in some ways, an, an incredible amount, especially obviously in the last couple of years. But um, you know, ten years ago, there there weren't a lot of great sort of crossover or rather blended funds that that had both the healthcare 
partner and the the technology partner who could come at the same time or or kind of look at us with both lenses. I told, yeah. I remember that from that time. Like it was having these conversations about, oh, are you going tech or are you going health? Yeah, and being exactly. a very disparate like plan, and it was like at, before you went into fundraising, like deciding this really. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, oh, sorry, Julie. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I was just gonna say I, I remember one of the best pieces of advice I got in those days was um, you sort your investors into A's, B's, and C's. The A's get it, and they they were already bought into your thesis before you even pitched them, and so you were really just fitting into something they already believed to be true. The C's C's didn't, but they told you out of the out of the gate and, and largely said, "Hey, you're not a great fit." And we spent a lot of time trying to convince B's into becoming A's, and you know basically running another experiment, gathering more data, finding kind of finding a new piece of information that would convince them when the reality was. At least in those early days, you just had to find your A's. You had to find the people who, you know, already believed. And in some ways, I think the world today means there's just a lot more A's because they've they've been through at least the cycle or they've seen it and they can pattern pattern match more effectively. Hey, question for you guys: Now that you've gone sort of now that you're veterans of the of this war um, and have built companies here, can you, in retrospect, is it naive to think that you can build a capital light company in this space i think it is oh, i think it's it's uh, maybe it's getting slightly easier but in healthcare the sales cycles are long and it's funny i've been at these you know bio entrepreneurship events where it almost always feels like the grass is greener where you're talking to folks that sell to employers and they're like well what's it like to sell to providers or you know folks that are selling to payers well our sales cycle shorter on your side of the world and and i think the reality here is on uh, you need you need a lot of capital to build a digital health company. I don't. I personally think that's uh, maybe incrementally less true today, but still very very true today. But I'd be curious to hear others' points of views on that. I definitely agree. I mean, it's definitely capital lighter. You know, there's things that you can partner for that you had to build before, obviously, um, but but still capital intensive. I mean, we'll we'll talk about lessons learned and stuff, but a, a lot of lessons I have was that we didn't spend enough, you know, and a lot of that's with people, whether it's around clinical services or even in just implementation and getting programs up. I think there's just a, there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of people involved uh, always. And the, and of course the tech will make that better over time. And we're already seeing that, but it's definitely not light. I don't think. And, and know-how, know-how does help a little bit. Like, you know, I mean, we raised an 800k seed round and this is, you know, everyone bring your, bring your brain back. This was when seed rounds were about 800k. Um, uh, and, and my gosh, just because the uh, clarity on FDA meets uh, digital health was so so opaque, I probably spent at least 75k of that seed round on some number of 20 FDA consultants to make sure that we weren't on a path to trip any wires. So so be, because there are more trodden routes here, I think there are things that you can get the answers on more efficiently. But you know, fundamentally, uh, you know, healthcare is a very complex business. It's got a very risk averse buying market. And you put the two of those together, and you need companies, uh, you know, that I think require a lot of capital to get through, you know, to get through the trenches. Now, the beautiful thing is because there's been success stories on the other side, um, that actually opens up capital availability for companies that are on a path to, you know, trodden through paths. So, uh, you know, I think the, you know, it's it's, it's likely, um, uh, you know, we're likely in a place now where, yes, you still need a lot of capital, but but you know, there's a route to with proof points, getting that capital more easily than, than there was previously. 
How do you think yeah, Sean, about the, the uh, Julie posed the question of um, equity financing versus, say, venture debt? And that's been that's been kind of a vexing question in some sense for healthcare services businesses, especially as they go full stack. Um, because you know, how, how do you how do you? And when it's a question that that we think about on our side too is kind of what justifies venture returns and what justifies an equity investment, both from our side of the table and yours. I'm curious if you guys have reflections on on that point in particular, especially as you've moved inched closer towards being full stack um, healthcare service providers. I'll go. I mean, probably should have thought about it more. I mean, we've taken venture debt to this. I still don't know if it was a good idea or not. Like it didn't hurt us. And, um, but it, it, there's sometimes for us, it was, you know, there were some times this is that propeller where, you know, it was tough, you know, there's up markets and down markets and, and hopefully your timing of fundraising works. And so venture debt for us became like a good tool, but, and we, I don't want to say we didn't think about it. We did a lot, but I don't know. I, I never, it was, it was there. It was there for us. It wasn't like a capital optimization strategy, I guess. It was like a good tool for us that was very helpful. Yeah, Chris, I, I'd agree. I mean, in, in those early days, obviously, I don't think you know, the, the venture debt, we even factored into the equation. Um, I just feel like <laughs> we just wrapped up our, our Series E and every time we've done this, it's just taken longer and costed far more. And I, and I, you know, Julie, I know you've written quite a bit about a lot of the infrastructure that's being built and, and, you know, how, how different it would be starting today versus 10 years ago. And I, and I do think that there's clearly pieces of, the, of this puzzle where there is, you know, a, a better playbook or maybe a more streamlined playbook, or maybe even kind of some specific, you know, wins that have come out that just make it easier to prove that you can make it to the next milestone. But I don't think it fundamentally changes the cost equation. I, I mean, I think you're still in the same order of magnitude. You might be able to shave off a bit. I think that changes in X time frame. I don't know what X is. It's certainly not, at least in my mind, today. But I but I do think that some of these new kind of these new sort of intermediary intermediary solutions are making it easier and allowing us to get data faster is still just a, you know, I think a pretty, pretty capital intensive sector. Yeah. I think it's just like, you know, another way to put this is there really aren't any shortcuts in this space. Um, you know, when it comes to product, when it comes to go to market, when it comes to the regulatory stuff that Sean mentioned. And, you know, so to that end, um, you know, you guys touched upon this in your intros, you know, let's talk about customer acquisition, because that is the thing that I think all of us, you know, said to ourselves in the beginning, like, we just need to fund ourselves such that we can survive the sales cycles and even give ourselves enough shots on goal to, you know, see whether we have product market fit. Um, what was it like to acquire your first customers? Like, what was the state of the market? You know, you guys were at the tip of the spear of like employer benefits in many ways um, across all your different companies. And, you know, what did you end up having to do that maybe you hadn't anticipated you'd need to do in order to see the market and get your, your product in front of customers? Um, and what were examples of, you know, mistakes that you made that in retrospects you would have either, you know, mitigated or, said that, you know, you should have actually invested more um, to make sure you got right, that that maybe you had um, sort of underestimated the cost of? Well, I can I can start with the story of an early customer, um, because I, it's one I still remember to this day. And, and this customer uh, was HealthNet, um, and it was a, a medical director at HealthNet who was hugely passionate about our space, you know, liked our data, you know, believed in the vision. But I remember this funny conversation where I, I had invited him over to WeWork. And 
you know, I, it's one of those where I had to rent the conference room because we had a little six person office and I, I don't know what he expected when he showed up, but I'm sitting there in the conference room, room with him and he's, you know, he's looks me, looks me in the eye after kind of a conversation of, uh, you know, how we can help support health net strategy that works. Um, and he's like, look, look at where, look at where we are, Sean. Where don't we work? You're six people. I'm literally, I'm writing you, me personally, I'm writing you into a five-year contract with one of our largest customers. Like what gives me any confidence, any confidence that you're going to be here in five years? Most startups fail. And it was one of those funny chicken or egg moments where, you know, I paused for a bit. I forget, I forget what I actually said. I'm sure it was, you know, something around the likes of like, look, we're, you know, we're backed by top tier investors that, that, you know, really aligned with our mission and have plenty of capital to help, you know, ensure that we achieve it. But what I wanted to say is, if you sign this contract, I will absolutely be more likely to be here. Like you're in the driver's seat. <laughs> um, and you get into this funny, uh, you know, in a risk averse buying markets, you get into this, you know, this, this chicken and the egg. And, and one, one bit of guidance I always tell, even to this day, entrepreneurs starting out in healthcare, like don't call yourself a startup. Like from day one, you should be a digital health company. Um, because maybe in other industries, it's really just awesome and glamorous and sexy as a big organization to partner with a startup for a new innovation initiative. I don't believe that's the case in healthcare. So it's, um, uh, you know, it can be really hard to get your first customers. I'm sure we've all, you know, everybody on the, on the, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the panel here, I'm sure has had many, many stories like that, just kind of praying that you get, a, you know, a couple across the finish line in the early days. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go, I'll talk about propeller here, but it, it was just nobody, nobody understood really anything. And so I remember actually getting together with, with some of this group and thinking about terminology and frame phrasing. And so we were all at least saying sort of the same things out in the market because nobody really understood how to classify us, how to, how to implement it, obviously, or how to look at it. And so there was no, no readiness for everything. So I think you end up early days, it was just like evangelism. Like everybody was just, every company was an evangelist, right? Trying to talk to all of these big, bigger companies about what whatever we were doing, whether it was digital therapeutics or monitoring or coaching or any of this stuff that was just all, all super new. And so, so much time uh, went into just getting them to the point where you could sell your solution or understand their problem and how it would fit in. Um, I We started, we um, figured we kind of worked into that um, by finding really supportive individuals, usually like one of our first programs, I think first main program, you know, Rich Roth at Dignity brought Propeller in and found a really, really passionate doctor who wanted to do this in, in his practice. And we crafted it as, uh, as a research program. It was commercial, though, we got paid for it. But it was re uh, like a research program. And that sort of made it easier, made it uh, more uh, I guess easier for people to get their head around like what it was. Oh, we're, we don't know if it works, so we're just going to test it. And that sounds fine. And I, I guess my biggest surprise was how many of those uh, we ended up, ended up doing. And like on the mistake side, I, like I said earlier, it was just, we didn't throw enough bodies at, at some of these problems. The biggest problems here are, you know, the user acquisition on both sides, like your customer who's paying you and then getting the patients in, and enrollment just is where I've seen, you know, more and more companies, most companies fail really. And so not throwing enough resources and bodies and people at, at enrollment and implementation early on to get those things up. We, we try to do it in like a capital efficient, you know, light, lighter way. And there, that's the place where I wish we would have probably spent more money and poured more people in really early. Julie. So, so many battle scars on this one, clearly. Right. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll pick one. Um, 
you know, I mean, I, I think certainly maybe specific to mental health, but probably can be applied across digital, digital health. Like our, our first product was largely about uh, measurement and about basically identifying or enabling kind of proactive care so we could intervene or help providers intervene early. But the challenge was, I mean, the, the, it, at the end of the day, the incentives just weren't aligned because the demand for services was through the roof. The supply was dwindling at best, which just meant that most behavioral health providers had a line out their door. So they had real, no real incentive to optimize the care stack in any, any real way. I mean, they talked about it. It was, it was great lip service. There was, you know, the Mental Health Parity Act and other kind of legislation that was coming out that was starting to, to kind of create that as a talk track when you would talk to uh, C-level executives, even at large health systems and clinics. But the, the reality was kind of breaking from the, you know, breaking out of pilotitis from let me kick the tires and see what's what's real to let me spend you know millions of dollars on on an investment. That's when you really start to get to know what matters and what doesn't. And, and for us, we discovered just frankly that at the end of the day, that that optimizing the care provider stack wasn't enough in a system that incented you know largely fee for service medicine, especially in mental health care. And so that was you know probably one of not the most important drivers to say, hey, what if we reinvented this machine from the ground up and got a chance to rewire it and, and set up the right incentives at every step in the process and, and then construct commercial contracts that rewarded us for investing in those things. And I think th that, you know, that was one of the hardest lessons I think we learned and I, I certainly learned personally is just to, to understand incentives at a, at a very specific level and understand that each per person in that ecosystem, you know, might have a different, different interpretation. So um, it's, 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 it can be a tough slog, but when you get it right, I mean, the flip side is um, it's, it, you know, it can work incredibly well and that motion can, can work incredibly fast. Yeah. We, on the incentive one, you know, this, this is one, yeah, I wish we would, I wish I would have learned this earlier that no matter how good and true and well-meaning all the people are, the, the overall incentives eventually will, will win. You know, we would, we would go into large health systems and with data about, you know, reducing ED visits and hospitalizations. And so we'd often start with like an at-risk pool who would be employees or some, you know, some of them have their own plan where they're at risk and, and go into there. And I remember this one, like this one, I, it was a large IDN. And, and then they start talking about rolling it out and someone finally like raised up and they're like, you, you know, like when we get it in, when we remodel this from the hospital point of view, you know, the, those, those visits are the, are the revenue. So how are we making sense out of us paying for this thing? And we really want to do it, but like, help us. How are we, how, how do we make this case? And it was, it was just like, wow, you know, you said the unsaid out loud. Um, and, but it was, it was just, it was just tough because you, you have all these very well-meaning people and then event, but eventually it does come back to the incentive. Yeah, and Julie, one um, uh, you know, I, I kind of forgot to share like lessons learned. One one critical one that man, I wish I would have caught in earlier is there's these interesting circadian rhythms over the course of a year um, with various stakeholders in in healthcare, and you know, it ranges from benefits consultants when they engage with clients, like how they plan their P&Ls, to you know, self-insured employers, you know, how they think about a year of evaluating solutions, you know, when they are interested in new conversations, when they buy how that times with open enrollments, when they're busy, to health plans, when, if they're going to write something into medical policy, that when do they have to file it with insurance commissioners? And it's, it sounds so small and granular, but, you know, for the first, uh, you know, couple of years at Armada, I felt like we're, you know, we, we didn't, 
have nearly enough attention on what what a year in the life, not a day in the life, what a year in the life of these major stakeholders looks like because you you really have to time your marketing efforts and your sales motions relative to that. And that's something I wish we would have you know gotten gotten practiced at earlier. We we hired a, a really experienced B two B sales person at one point, and the like first question was what what's their budget cycle and when you know when do they have to decide? I mean, it was just like that's how it's done, and you know all of us you know oh, okay, we need calendars of all of all of their budget cycles and when all this stuff happens. That was learned way too late. <laughs> and, and you know to this point, I mean, it's such a it's such an important one. It's sort of one of those like. What are the ground truths that are that are actually true? And so, shot like you're describing that that rhythm and that cycle is is just a you know inevitability in many ways. And then, like I've been catching myself trying to think about like, well, what has changed now that so much has potentially changed? Like, are, are any of those fundamental assumptions different? Like, one of the things that we we've, we've been feeling or discovering certainly during during the you know, last 12 to 14 months is is um, so, sometimes those cycles can be disrupted and people can buy buy off cycle, but obviously that, that takes yep. a, a, a global pandemic to, to kind of change that. But there may be others that, you know, now start to where the move, the, the ground starts to move. Um, and that's a, that's a tricky balance, but I, I think that's been something that, you know, has, has been a tough lesson to learn at times is that sometimes you just can't move that. Yeah. I think like so much of the game is it's like, I always called them APIs, right? You have to find the right API um, to engage with a given organization. And it's that, that's a combination of timing. It's a combination of budget cycles. It's a combination of existing vendor landscape, right? Like even knowing the contract lifetimes of the existing systems that are already in place. And, you know, when might um, a contract be coming up for renewal when they might be, you know, in a, in a mindset where, Maybe looking at alternative solutions, um, you know, all of that causes it, it's it's all the things that like you know you start with the product and then you're like here's the you know kind of ideal situation into which you could deploy this and then you find out you're dealing with a million different variables that you then have to accommodate, um, which impacts all that and and you know not to mention on the employer side especially it's um, you know you've got the employer cycle you got the payer cycle and then you got your consumers you know who are obviously coming in and out of jobs and and all that so it's it's multiple dimensions. Um, it, you know, one of the things that I'm sort of, uh, that all of us are talking about here are all the pain points that we experienced over the last 10 years. But in some ways, like if you, if you, uh, squint your eyes, like, you know, has much changed? Like, I mean, it seems like all of these things are the same things that, you know, digital health companies are dealing with now. Um, you know, same as, as we were all seeing 10 years ago. And, you know, we were joking earlier about like, you know, health 2.0, I see Matt in the crowd down, down there, but, you know, health 2.0 is like a trigger word for many of us. Like we all remember, you know, the old conferences in DC, um, it was like really a movement that represented this desire for more connected healthcare, more patient-centric care. Um, it was also like one of the first conferences that, you know, we all met at back in the day, um, you know, for, for folks who were building in this space. And, you know, uh, we, we actually, um, we brought up the, the 2010 conference link, like the agenda for, for the 2010 Health 2.0 conference. And if you, you read it, you know, things that you see there are tools for care management, um, tools for the doctor's office, the next generation communities, wellness 2.0, behavior change, interoperability. The cynical view is that you look at, you know, where the space has come in the last 10 years. And, you know, we're still kind of talking about the same, the same stuff that we were talking about 10 years ago. Um, what's, what's your guys' take on that? Like, is it really, are we still, you know, sort of at the beginning? Are there things that you think have fundamentally moved with regards to, like, are we focused on the right right things? Like, are we prioritizing the right areas of the market that we're, we're all as a community thinking about? 
um, how do you guys sort of grok, you know, the, the amount of progress that we've made as an industry in the last decade? I'll, I'll start. I mean, I, I do think, you know, all the entrepreneurs that I know in this space are all tremendous optimists. So I think there's an optimistic read to this, which is like, yeah, those are the problems. Like we were pretty good at uh, identifying the problems way back when and kind of knew it just, it's just timing, right? We knew what the answers were. It's just taken, you know, so much longer than I ever, you know, anticipated. Um, but I think, I think it's right. But if you eat in each of those categories, you can definitely see, market improvements from the V1 to the V2 to the now the V3 companies in those spaces. And they're starting to have success and they're starting to be better. So I'm like, I'm okay with it. I, you know, definitely didn't think it was going to be 10 years. I'm still talking about it, but I think it means we've been focused on the right stuff for a long time. And I'm definitely optimistic for the next wave because there's just so many cool things on the horizon. Do you think at the 2030 conference, the agenda will look <laughs> similar, different, and, and oh, and what we call it digital health. We're going to look question. back in 2030 and be like, oh my God. Oh, we're just gonna call that's it a good health. question. Don't ask that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, digital is a modality. It's funny. Like, I, I, I think, you know, per Chris's point, you know, by definition, I think if you're doing this, you're an optimist. Um, but I, I do think, I do think things have changed materially because I, I, you know, I think there's three, um, just running down three constituents. You know, one, we talked about investors. There are more investors that are comfortable at the crossroads. Um, there are companies that have hit scale where investors have made incredible returns. That leaves the next set of investors or the same investors willing to make the next bets. So I think that, you know, there's capital availability to, you know, drive through and suffer through the, through the selling cycles, you know, given that these are capital intensive businesses. So I think that's changed. I think that's materially different. You know, second of that, enterprise buyers, um, whether it's because you know all three of us and others were on this trajectory to you know proselytize the power of digital health, um, uh, you know, or or COVID hit you know like an like an anvil, uh, digital health is part of the scaffolding of tomorrow. So uh, you know, I mean, we five years ago, I remember so many conversations with payers where you know we would share, look, we contract as a covered entity, as a provider, we'd love to work with work with your claims billing teams to bill as claims, like you know, we we are a digital provider, and they'd ask, well do you have offices? And we say, well, no. And it was a little bit of a head scratcher. And I think that that's different now. I think you can verticalize and contract as a provider in ways that are a little bit more easy. And I think health plans of tomorrow will have network teams that set up networks with in-person you know, medical groups as well as digital medical groups. So I think that's that's kind of changing the third from a consumer standpoint. Um, uh, you know, People, if you're a healthcare provider, you're more comfortable because you had to provision care and deliver care remotely. And secondly, as a consumer, you're more comfortable receiving care remotely because of COVID. So I think all three of those, um, uh, you know, really, really, really uh, add up to some meaningful change and, you know, ideally creating, you know, a, a system where we don't even have to, for the for the commentary at the end, have to even use the words digital health because it's just healthcare that happens to be delivered digitally. And most healthcare services will probably have some version of hybrid models. Not that you always have to take on both the digital and the Persian, but, you know, some, some version of hybrid. Yeah, maybe there's health and just non-digital health. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Sean, that was such a, such a great response. And, and Julie, I, I love this question. I, I think I think you nailed it. Um, and I, I do think that the 2030 conference agenda will largely have the same sub points, but, but we'll have made progress. I mean, I, I think I, I think particularly because of the proof points that have now come. I mean, I, I remember the most common question we would just get asked is, you know, 
who else is in this space? Is this a sector? And clearly in so much of what I think all of us are doing now, there, there's you know meaningful competition. There's real dollars. There's actual kind of certainly investment dollars, but, but perhaps more importantly, the customer dollars being spent on these kinds of solutions in, in, a, in a pretty meaningful way at, at both the you know, employer health plan kind of at government payer levels. So I think just the flow of money is changing to say these things, these these widgets, if you will, that were on the fringe of medicine and healthcare are now starting to become the sort of maybe default first step. And COVID clearly is has, has just knocked that on another level. So I think that's going to be quite meaningful. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's it's following the the, the dollars and the spend. I mean, I, I remember. Julie, I feel like it might have been a conversation you and I had like, you know, a decade or so ago around with the launch of ACOs and just a lot of like just more value-based care contracting. The, the age-old debate from almost everyone was just how real was that? Was it actually going to drive behavior? And, mm -hmm. you know, I think we're starting to see that. We're certainly seeing that with just some of the plans that we're directly contracting with where, you know, they've been talking about doing that for a long time and now they're actually putting in network, uh, you know, various kinds of provider groups or digital providers or virtual providers. So um, I'm I'm also very, very bullish on this, uh, optimistic overall, um, but I, I think it's going to be the same categories here. Yeah, I was going to say that that was probably a conversation we could have had last week too. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Continuing the dialogue. Yeah, so it's super interesting. So far what we're saying is that, you know, the things that have changed in the industry are investor, just like the marketplace for investment, um, you know, Sean, you mentioned goods payers, I think, are becoming much more mature and, um, you know, kind of willing to contract with digital first providers, which I think is huge. There's the consumers being more comfortable with virtual first care modalities. And there are just more proof points in the market of, of companies that have done this at scale, like you guys, and have data that demonstrates, you know, both the clinical and the cost and financial um, benefits of, of doing it the way you guys are doing. Um, Two two other related questions to this. One is on the talent side because I, I we've we've definitely all had this conversation too of like you know when you're hiring you know which of the roles um, for for which of the roles do you care about healthcare you know domain expertise for which of the roles would you rather hire someone who's just coming you know outside of healthcare um, and now you know one of the things that I'm certainly excited about is the fact that we finally have this crop of scaled digital health companies from which talent is flowing such that you have folks who are like really trained in the art of the intersection of digital, uh, of healthcare and, and technology at scale and have seen sort of what great looks like. Um, how have you guys found that um, aspect of, of your, your company building exercise um, in terms of how that's changed over the years? Yeah, I can, I can start here because I think, Julie, you're hitting on something super, super important. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's one of the things where it's like not always, always talked about, but maybe one of the most important in that, you know, people have uh, learned either from the tech world and the healthcare world or vice versa, like learned and tried new things and made mistakes, you know, at companies like, you know, Mata, Ginger, Propeller, um, and they're more equipped to go off to the next company and and have impact. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, you you need incredible people to help realize a mission here. And so there, there's more convergence talent, um, which I think is a really big deal. And I actually think it, you know, it, it goes all the way back. Like I look at um my medical school class um, where, I was I always loved technology, but I was in medical school. There were maybe two or three other people um, like me that had, you know, played around a little bit of programming, you know, loved computers, like were really tech fluent. Um, nowadays, it's almost like, you know, JavaScript is today's cursive. And, you know, people are entering the, you know, medical or biological sciences with far more tech fluency and they're coming out with graduate degrees 
that better position them to be convergence founders. And so I think from a talent standpoint, you know, they're, they're really bright, but that's a, yeah, that's a, a really material change. Actually, they're not even teaching cursive in school anymore. So it's more likely to be learned. Than, right. than, uh, <laughs> yeah. But that's a great point. I mean, Sean, that I think we've got different crop of founders and, 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 and ICs and everything. It's it's just completely different. It's so it's so nice. You know, you talk to people and there's these hard problems and you can find someone who's actually done it before. And that was just non-existent. You know, we've done a lot of, well, for this role, there isn't anybody who's done it. So what would be the most related? And, you know, we'd look at things like fintech, you know, because they have to work in a regulated environment. It can't just be, you know, anything. And we found good success at bringing those people over. Um, but now, you, you know, you search on LinkedIn for a while, which I've been doing a lot lately, and it's incredible, like the different experiences that people have uh, that they can bring to bear. And that was completely, you know, that was absolutely completely uh, absent before. Yeah, we, we used to talk about this as, as the religious debate. You, you could have either or you could have the technology people or the healthcare people. You couldn't have both. And, and now there's a, there's a crop of, of both. I, I think, you know, one of the things for me personally over the last probably two years in particular has just been the quality of talent that I think is jumping into the space. And, and certainly that, that um, you know, we, we brought on board on our end specifically, but just more broadly in the sector. And I think that's, that's pretty special. I mean, there, there's certainly the folks who've done this, you know, a cycle, but there's also just, you know, really incredible people who've been solving parallel problems in other spaces. And, and it's incredible. It's, it's, it's interesting to see just how, applicable a lot of a lot of those skills are directly into you know into into this world i mean i, I certainly have seen it as, as we brought on uh, a new ceo uh russ who's just been a mentor for me came from the, the technology world and uh, you know a very different uh set of training and framing but it's been super helpful and, and the same is true as we brought on some folks you know directly in healthcare so i think one of the lasting changes certainly I, I'm, I'm hopeful from the pandemic too is a lot of people actually looking at this sector and and trying to jump in mixed with a lot of us on the call and in the it looks like in the in the in the room here uh who want to want to make a dent yeah i agree with all that and what the other thing that um you know we've always always heard all of us have heard you know over and over again over the course of the years as we were you know we were all raising capital and whatnot is like the the skepticism of, of like how big can digital health actually get and, um, you know, in the, and certainly in the early days, it was always viewed as kind of a niche and, you know, there were no sort of demonstrated um, companies that, that really truly got to scale that would be comparable to, you know, any of the best in class companies that we saw in enterprise or consumer or other industries. But, you know, clearly we've seen at least a few early examples of that um, with, with some of the companies that have gone public. But in your experiences, especially because most of you have, or all of you, I think, have, um, experience selling into the, the employer benefit channel, which is, you know, one that I think a lot of people were skeptical about uh, with regards to how big it could, get, it could get. Would you say now, you know, with the number of years of experience you have selling into that channel, that, that it turns out that, you know, yes, it is, it, it's actually, you know, still something that you consider kind of a wedge in terms of go to market. And, you know, ultimately to get really, really big, you have to figure out another segment of the market to sell into, um, to, you know, to, to kind of scale your business over time. Or are you finding what, you know, what we found in a lot of the enterprise space, which is that, you know, no one really foresaw how big that those initial segments could actually get and that there was sort of an underappreciation for, you know, how big any one of those channels could be ultimately. Um, do you guys have a point of view on on which one of those dynamics you're, you're experiencing and, and what would you say um, you, you, that we're likely to see, you know, sort of in the in the coming years in this in this whole space? 
I mean, I'm happy to kind of pick, pick up first here. So the, uh, you know, I think these companies can be get really, really big. I mean, I mean, you literally just look at the, you know, the the physician associated revenues per year in the U.S. healthcare system is in the trillions, trillions. Um, and the question becomes, what of that can you push into the cloud and into the pocket and the home? Uh, and then the second order of question is kind of how. Um, you know, what, what I what I think happens to any company, even if you focus on one particular area of a go-to-market and, you know, self-insured employers could be one example. It, it sometimes turns into, and oftentimes if you're doing a good job, turns into working in other lines of business. So, you know, if a plan, maybe, you know, maybe they'll start you with their self-insured line of business or their ASO business, but once they see clinical and economic returns, all of a sudden they'll start writing you into their fully insured and you'll be on an exchange plan before you know it. And all of a sudden you'll be introduced to their government lines of business. So, um, I, you know, I think it's like, you know, two, two things fundamentally, like how, how do you think about the payer landscape generally, be it a self-insured employer or any other entity that's carrying a risk? And then second of that, how do you think about how you get people in? And I think, um, uh, you know, companies uh, like Omada and others, as they progress, will constantly not only think about, well, what other lines of business can I start to open up to drive further growth? But most importantly, what are the network effects between them? You know, how do they interface across the system? And that's one of the blessings and curses of the U.S. healthcare system. And then we have like many pockets of almost every type of insurance, you know, state-based, government-led, national, single-payer. If you're 65 up, you're on a single-payer system, employer-sponsored. I mean, you name it, we've got it in the U.S. And one of the challenges uh, and opportunities for entrepreneurs in the space is you have to think at a systems level on how all those payers intersect and think through your strategies in each. Um, but I think when you do it, I mean, it's such a fundamental, you know, enormous enormous part of the U.S. economy. There's so much spend that's not well well spent in the U.S. healthcare system that, you, you know, you can build really, really big businesses here. Yeah, Sean, I, I, that's, a, that's a great summary. I, the only thing I'd add, and I think maybe, Julie, part of what you're asking here is the, the world has changed quite a bit there in that there are, you know, versus 2010, where there are actually just, you know, incredible amount of just innovation and and shots on goal. And so from a buyer's perspective, that can that can get confusing at, at times as well. Um, and so, you know, whether because you get pulled through into other lines of business, uh, if you're selling to an employer, you get pulled into the plan or, you know, potentially vice versa. Um, you know, we're, we're certainly seeing that to some degree. I mean, we, we, you know, working with a lot of employers from large to small, where we're then in network with their, with the number of the health plans and then demonstrating, you know, some meaningful efficacy, and you get pulled into into that line of business. Um, I do think that for the companies that are that are launching now, and, and I'm sure in the in the future, um, there are going to be opportunities to sell into you know virtual virtual providers and and uh, kind of some of the, the digital health ecosystem as a as a customer base in and of themselves. Um, in addition to sell, you know, the, the tried and you know call, call it the tried and true. Uh, of selling into you know a large self-insured employer, so I I, wanna, I guess there might be other commercialization strategies that just weren't open ten years ago that are now starting to be open because there's this ecosystem and because there are more platform players. You guys are so optimistic, which is fantastic to hear. Um, are there, you know, now you've spent so much time in in the healthcare system. Are there just some embedded, you know, uh, whether they're competing incentives or um, just structural, you know, challenges that just won't get solved by technology that are just, you know, a part of the system and everyone's going to have to learn to live with them. Like, are you optimistic that we can actually 
build a better system on top of what we have now, or are some of the challenges we have just going to persist? I, I think it's a time, you know, the, a time frame. I think, you know, over a long enough period of time, the answer would be, yeah, we can build something new or on top. Um, but in the time frame, no, I think, I think there's just like a better understanding and maybe this is just experience of, there's like a lot of people that have been doing this for a long time now that a, a better understanding of how the pieces fit together. And so the, the clever pitches you see now, like have a much deeper understanding of like pair dynamics or geographic pair dynamics or geographic uh, uh, provider dynamics and how they sort of fit in, you know, whereas in the past we maybe didn't do that as well. But so I think I think right now, so you're tr trying to figure out people like are fitting in better and that so there's a better path to scale. But I don't know in the it depends, you know, if you're talking five years, of course, we're not going to rewrite the system or yeah. even 10 years. And I do, uh, you know, it's, I think it's a really proper, proper question. You know, the, the funny thing that I sometimes think about is like, you, you know, there, there are there are fundamental laws of physics to this healthcare system. And I think for your comment, there are many that are immutable. Um, uh, and just, you know, incentives per Chris's comments, regional go-to-market dynamics that are just truths, ways that you have to work within the system. There's a weird, you know, again, glass, glass, rose-colored glasses, glasses, hat shoulders, a weird um, blessing in the fact that a lot of these are immutable and they don't change and that they can be understood, they can be codified. You know, entrepreneurs can poke at them and view them not as changeable, but as constraints. And figure out how to work within them. So, uh, you know, as digital health companies scale and we try to think through a new system, there might literally be, oh, oh interesting. You're thinking about commercializing in North Carolina. Here's, here's literally a 55-page North Carolina playbook relative to the unique dynamics of the regional blues plans, uh, you know, the provider Carolinas and the network dynamics, the rates there, you know, the spread between commercial government, the demographics, like all, you know, it can get to that granular level of detail. And because things aren't changing as fast, it allows it to be understood and studied and operated with, within. Uh, so I, I actually think that that's happening, you know, underneath our feet right now. Yeah, Sean, I, I, I like that. And I think, I think you're right that there, we can reverse engineer, uh, those specific kind of, um, kind of use cases. Um, Jorge, I feel like part of the kind of built into your question though is, uh, but at least that, in our in our view, or that that creates just so much extra bloat you have to build within your team. So I, I'm thinking of an example. My my mind is uh, credentialing with a variety of plans, and the the kind of the different ways in which regional or national plans might actually be a national provider, kind of at a at a medical group level or at a, or an individual level. And it's it's incredible. It's one of those. How do you reverse engineer this process to streamline it to go from X months? Uh, year to you know weeks or days when you're because that's so foundational to your business and making sure that your supply is, is kind of usable so i i'm i think like sean i'm i'm optimistic that you can figure out a way that the challenge is that um, going back to the question around capital that we were talking about earlier it just means that you're going to need to staff up certain parts of your business for far more with far more people than necessarily mm -hmm. technology or process that you know just just I wish there was another way. It clearly feels like the health plan side, there's, there's an incredible amount of extra administrative costs. And the same might be true for a lot of the, these, these clinics and, and other kind of virtual plays. So I think 
that's the the downside of it. But you, but you're right. I think we you can figure it out, and you you can figure out the, the secret handshake if you will. And in the I mean, the one tens might be it, it may not get easier, but it will it will get more understood. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is awesome. I'm gonna we're gonna start bringing up folks uh, to to um, transition us into the after party here in a second. But um, you know, one last question just to wrap all this up and uh, just you know kind of give folks in the audience something actionable to kind of take away here. Um, you know, we've all um, had the conversation of like, gosh, you know, as we look at entrepreneurs doing what they're doing right now, um, there are literally things that I can say took mm -hmm. years to build or years to do that I see, you know, the founders today accomplishing in, in like months or if not weeks, you know, Epic integration being one of them. You guys all think it's hard today. It was like a like hundred times harder um, 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, that's only one of, of, of several several examples. So what would you guys say, like when you think about but those who are starting a digital health company now, um, what do they have that you didn't have when you got started that you think is going to be the biggest game changer for them as they got off the ground? Well, I think the 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 data layer is get bit by bit becoming easier. You know, with the HIEs or the folks like you know Particle Health or Health Gorilla. You know, I mean, it um, kind of levels the playing field if you're delivering clinical services to be able to do it within the context of data. So I, you know, and we're not going to get to the panacea overnight here, but I do think that that's something that. Um, you know, becomes uh, easier in today's world, um, uh, you know, at a, at a pretty quick end pace, which which is a beautiful thing. Chris, I know you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I would say, you know, what, um, really trying to figure out, I think, what you need to own uh, and what is like the secret sauce of the company versus what you can partner or or buy. I think one of the, you know, the biggest changes here is that there there are so many different tools that are awesome and services that are available. And so before we weren't able to really experiment or try certain things because it was simply like too too big an effort and too expensive. And, and now through partnership, maybe you could do that. And so really thinking about like, is there stuff that I can offload? Because anything that you can offload, you can use that time and resource to build something else that might be your, your secret sauce. Uh, and then the, the other thing I think is sort of invert how we used to think about it. Uh, understand the whole path all the way through payment and not just through acquisition, not just through the service, but through the nitty gritty of, of payment, which sounds like obvious now because we've, we've all like struggled through it. But even, even starting there with how the payment happens and working backwards, because um, then you just get into a jam where you, you might just have this like square peg in a round hole that, that doesn't fit at the end of the day. Um, and I, I can see people already giving a ton more thought to that than we did in the early days. Julie, Chris always had an opinion. Uh, I, I was like, that's a that's a great <laughs> summary. I would I would just add. I mean, you know, forums like this, frankly, are, are really maybe maybe as Sean was describing, kind of the concept of being able to reverse engineer the the code, if you will, to these just opaque parts of the process, where um, you know, find your tribe, find folks who may have gone through this before in some way or another, and, and maybe stumbled their way through it, and now they were to do it again would do it pretty fundamentally differently. And, and you know, it's, it can be uh, as, as painful and as, as specific as, as kind of optimizing a certain part of your rev cycle process or your credentialing process for your providers all the way to, you know, how do you recruit team and what teams, what kind of DNA do you need at different stages of a company? I just, I just think that there are is at least more data and more precedents so that you can, you can pattern match and obviously make your, make your own call. But um, I think that's a, that's probably one of the most fundamental differences from, 2010 till now. Amazing. Hey, you I know, just, in, um, 
you know how in Back to the Future, um, at the very end, before Martin McFly is going to get the DeLorean, <laughs> um, he, he hands uh, Doc Brown a letter. And he's like, this is really important for your future. You got to read this. If you guys could travel back in time, like, what would you tell little Sean and little Chris and little Karen, like, dude, digital health, man, stay away. <laughs> like, what, what would you tell your, 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 your past little self about this, this space? Jorge, I feel like I've got to take this question because Back to the Future is my, my favorite movie of all time. Uh, what an incredible tee up. Uh, I would say, I would say go all in. This is, this is, but this is still the long game. I mean, I, I think the time dimension has just been obviously the, 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 the time warp year, but um, I would say no doubt, uh, still a whole lot of fun and a whole lot of pain. Oh, I would definitely. I mean, yeah, I would say, you know, the note would be go bigger and be more patient. Um, and may, you know, maybe don't, don't try to sell to certain specific IDNs. <laughs> that would be a very, very dry note. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I'd either write a huge dry note on like sales cycle, like we talked about before and, you know, buying cycles <laughs> and say, or, or I just literally, I'd, I'd, I'd make sure that the note never landed in Sean's lap. Cause yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of those words. It's kind of, the naivety is kind of helpful. Like, uh, you know, I mean, chasing a dollar in the U.S. healthcare system is so hard. Um, and uh, sometimes there's a blessing in not quite knowing how it works when you do something uh, and you know jump off a you know jump off a cliff and be willing to just keep powering through it. So I'd probably I'd probably take the path of hiding. I think all of us would be the happiest parents in the world if our children grew up to be digital health entrepreneurs when it's no longer called digital health. Um, so with that, thank you guys so much. This was awesome. Um, thank you for all you guys do for the ecosystem and, uh, you know, just paving the path for everyone who's, who's building now 10 years later and uh, taking advantage of all that the, the early generation of, of founders have, um, have done to make it easier for, for the next generation. So at this point, I'll hand it off up to, uh, to Venkat to, um, to get into the official after party uh, portion of this event. So for those who have to jump, thanks for joining. And uh, we'll now let uh, some of the folks who have come up on stage um, ask some additional questions to our guests. Well, you know, also, I just um, I thought Hori's question was so apt. So this is the after party, and uh, we have some amazing uh, guests here with us. Um, so this is going to be a star-studded event. Um, what, what I love about this, as we were talking about this earlier, is uh, it turns out in May of 2012, I applied to every single company here. Uh, that's that's great because we just went through the rejection letters from the founders. Uh, Sean said he was only looking for software developers. That's hilarious. Sean said he was only looking for software developers. He doesn't need my skill set. Karen thought my strategy skill set wasn't that great. And Tom, I don't know what the rejection letter was uh, from one met. So maybe maybe to, to Tom first. Um, I actually love for his question, Tom. If you had to compare and contrast what it was like to start back in the day, what would you like? You know, when you look at sort of. 10 years ago versus now starting companies, like your thoughts and, and comments and questions. We would love to sort of go with you, Tom, first. Oh, uh, okay. The snow was a lot heavier and deeper. The walks were a lot longer. Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> at least when I was a quote unquote digital health entrepreneur, you know, there wasn't really a lot of bits and bytes being transferred. So, um, you know, it depends on if you're measuring in decades or just 10 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, you know, I think capital was starting to enter the market. 
Um, and so, you know, it depends on how far back we go, but uh, it's been a journey and there's just been amazing work that's been going on so far, you know, with folks like yourself and, and a lot of the companies that have been on today. But uh, I, I'm glad to be part of the OG, I guess. <laughs> exactly. We need, by the way, Tom, we need you to uh, DJ a set or something after this for the after party. That's what we, that's what we need you to do. Um, that would be dangerous. <laughs> um, maybe actually um, we, we have sort of an entrepreneur point of view, but I think it's really important also to also talk about the other side of this industry side. So, you know, Rich got a, got a shout out, Rich Roth from um, Dignity Health, now Common Spirit. Um, Rich, I'm sure you have a thousand stories with, you know, a lot of these entrepreneurs here. Um, would love to hear your point of view as you hear this conversation or you have questions for the entrepreneurs. Paige and Rich Roth, come off mute, Rich. Otherwise, we're going to go to Schwen. He's just inking more deals. He's, he's busy yeah, inking more exactly. deals. Uh, hey, guys. Sorry, sorry about that. As I, as I said to Venkat, I'm in the middle of taking kids to soccer class or soccer practice. So uh, do, doing my best to do both. But uh, none nonetheless, uh, yeah, it's great. This is a great. This is a great session. As you as you guys know, we we work with so many of uh, these uh, great companies in in their early days. And you know, as, as I think about bringing some of them in, it's pretty. Um, you know, I think number one, there's an important role of kind of a, a shepherd on the on the health system side. But you know, so much of we what we have to do on the health system side beyond you know engage physicians and operators is kind of work through all the safeguarding mechanisms. So you think about IT and compliance and data security, and then you know here you are bringing in these like twenty year olds where it's their first job and they're talking about connected devices and things in the cloud and. Uh, it's almost like you're bringing in like the three horsemen of the apocalypse into these meetings. Uh, and, and I can, I can remember days, especially with propeller where we're literally having really honest ethical discussions. Cause these people are supposed to safeguard data and our patients and, you know, about like, Oh, what if someone's using an inhaler and they're supposed to be at school, but they're not at school. And we know that. And so, you know, do we have to tell the parents, you know, and what's our role there? And so um, I'm curious for the group, uh, number one, has working through a lot of those data security and legal and really challenging kind of, you know, processes with health systems gotten any better, you know, from day one to where they're at today in terms of how they're, you know, engaging with teams, have the teams gotten more, you know, sophisticated and, and aligned with it? And then number two, if there's any uh, any good stories you have about taking um, you know, taking your company through and, and meeting some interesting walls uh, along the way about what people's impressions of what you are uh, trying to do work. I mean, I'll start. Yeah, by by the end, definitely it's gotten easier. But I, mean, I don't think it's gotten easier. Everyone's just gotten better at it. And so, you know, you get asked the same questions each time, and and for the same certifications and so on. And so you kind of get your pitch down internally. So it's still a drag, but it's not like the first time when everybody's dancing and all the questions, and then you build up precedent of contracts, you know, so you end up with lawyers who have done these deals a lot in contracts. And so you have a lot more ability to, to keep things, you know, similar the next time. The, the first ones were, were way, way more brutal. Yeah, I mean, my, from a, I'll just really, my, my experience in Rich, you know, I mean, we've gone, we went through this with, with, uh, with you back in the day too, but like the, ver I mean, I would say like the first three to four years was, um, convincing people that like, A, the cloud was something distinct from on-prem 
and having to basically like rewrite all of the agreements as such, because the, you know, just like the majority of the questions that were asked were like completely irrelevant to, you know, cloud, cloud, like SaaS solutions. Um, so I think like in that sense, yes, we've come a very, very long way where I do think that now, you know, all of those, um, those evaluation criteria are sort of right-sized for, for the modern era. Um, but I think to your point, like, I think the, the place where we still have a lot of work to do as an industry is like all of the, the potential use cases on the consumer side that, you know, I think we're, we're only in the very, very early days of really contemplating the security, privacy, compliance, you know, related issues on how data gets used, disseminated, um, you know, input, output, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we've, we've come a long way with regards to just recognizing, you know, how we need to think about data in the cloud as from like a storage perspective, but, you know, very much still in the early days with regards to how that data actually gets utilized, you know, what those standards are, et cetera, which I think like this, at the end of the day, I, I would, I would guess that it's going to be the startups themselves who define those standards and actually, you know, propagate them and execute them and implement them, you know, versus relying on the industry per se to, to define them. But um, curious if you guys are seeing the same thing or if, if, if anyone knows of any work being done along those lines. I'll just tell one crazy data story because you asked that, but it, this is less about privacy, but it was with a big pharma company and they, you know, they look at it and it gets into the pharmacovigilance group and they're like, well, our, our medicine is supposed to prevent people from having symptoms. So we're tracking every time they use their albuterol inhaler. And so each one of the, every time someone uses their albuterol inhaler, it's going to be an adverse event we need to report to FDA. And so, and then we're going to have this number of patients. We think they're going to use their inhaler this many times. So we estimate we're going to generate 200,000, you know, adverse events that were, and things like this and trying to help people understand, like, they just spin out of control. You know, often they get their hands on more data and then, you know, find, find ways to, to freak out about it. And so, you know, having to convince them of that was intense. But, you know, the next time some pharma company asked some crazy thing like that, we had already gone through it. Speaking of pharma companies asking things, Shwen, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> curious how you've seen it evolve uh, from a life sciences perspective, because you've sort of been in that convergence point between um, digital health and life sciences industry for some time now. And curious your thoughts here or questions for the entrepreneurs. Yeah, thanks, Venka. Um, and, you know, since this is the OG room, I started reminiscing and thinking, you know, what, 10, 15 years ago, um, I remember being on the data design diabetes judging panel um, where Ginger won, right, Karen, and that's where we first met. And then organizing things like, you know, unconferences, as they were called then, which were really cool, um, so that like-minded people like Chris and I could meet up in Boston to basically complain about how hard it was to do this in, uh, in healthcare. Uh, and 15 years later, I think, you know, the only difference is we have an app to do it on now called Clubhouse, right? Uh, we're still doing the same thing. Uh, but I'm just curious, actually, from uh, from the from the uh, entrepreneur side of things, um, what is the difference now between then and now working with biopharma, especially? Um, there's so many more vehicles by which we are now engaging the digital health community. You know, whether it's incubators and accelerators, venture funds, uh, innovation groups, uh, directly with commercial teams or other teams. I'm curious how how has the experience changed or hasn't it? And I know. Chris, you went through a big deal recently with a big pharma company that I might or might not have been a part of. Um, and I know you had a, an experience there, so we'd love to hear your experience. I mean, I guess I'll, I'll start there. I mean, uh, 
it, so it's changed and it's, and it's stayed the same. So in, the way it's changed is that the stuff kind of back to the earlier session, like everything that we're doing now has this feeling of normalcy to it, whether it's telemedicine or delivery of meds or even an app to help people with their health. And, and back in the day, that just wasn't normal. And so running up the chain, you know, farm, farm is all about stakeholder management. You have, you know, tremendous number of stakeholders. And so that's definitely changed. You have less of like the early on-ramp that this isn't just crazy and there's some precedent to it and so on. I would say the places it hasn't changed is it still hasn't clicked in. You know, the whole premise of pharma and promise of pharma is that they're a sales and distribution powerhouse and they take technology and they distribute it. And we haven't seen that yet. I still think that'll come, uh, but there's just been a lot of challenges for a variety of reasons in, in that happening. Um, and so that hasn't changed at all. Like there aren't really still examples of that, of what was expected. Like it was going to look like a biotech drug or something like that. I'm, I'm still optimistic, um, but I would have thought that something, there would be an example by now of, of something scaled and really to look at. Sean, Sean, you might have, yeah. well, well, let's go to Curran, but uh, let's go Curran first and then Sean. Uh, I'm sure Sean have some some good perspective here. Uh, Schwen, it has it hasn't been 15 years, but it's it's certainly been 10 years, which is which is pretty wild. I'm probably I'll, I'll take the the pessimistic lens on this. I you know having worked in the biotech and pharma world prior to to starting Ginger, um, I'm not as as bullish that uh, we're going to see meaningful progress or traction. We we don't currently sell in you know into uh, in, into the biopharma world in, in a really meaningful way. Um, I just I'm, I'm generally, it goes back to incentives. I'm still just generally skeptical um, at the end of the day, given how how um, disruptive a lot of these things could be to the traditional kind of detail of care delivery model. Uh, and so um, I think that there's been, there's been an, an evolution in thinking. And I think like Chris, you were describing, I think there's folks who now get, get it or understand the, the paradigm. Um, but we, we have, we've yet to see any really meaningful traction. Um, and I, I just think a lot of this has to do with, with, with kind of incentives being largely still misaligned. And there's, again, there's, there's some, some specific examples where that's starting to, to change. Um, but I, I think it's going to be much further behind the rest of the rest of the industry. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo that. I think the conversations that, you know, either myself or our team fields today, uh, with life sciences aren't too different than, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago. Now, um, you know, I think there remains a high interest. So, you know, jury's out where, where we have seen movement interest on the device side. So, uh, you know, Amada um, uh, did a pretty, pretty big business development deal with Abbott to, you know, leverage the freestyle library, which is, you know, very neat continuous glucose monitor in a deeply integrated way into our, you know, to our diabetes, uh, you know, program. So, you know, that's an example of device manufacturers saying, you know what, like, let's think about ways if our, you know, device data has utility to these digital healthcare companies, other than just kind of spitting out to the patient, let's think about ways to amplify that. And, and that, that feels um, uh, maybe a bit, a bit newer. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens you know, maybe, maybe pharma follows suit, but, but thus far it's been, um, you know, uh, kind of a, about the same. And uh, Venkat, if you don't mind, if I could ask uh, yeah, yeah. a follow-up question, I was just curious where you guys think the biggest opportunities are that we're just not, you know, we were just totally missing that opportunity right now. Yeah, I, I can start. I, I think certainly in, in uh, mental health care, just kind of specific examples, we, we have psychiatrists on staff who are prescribing medications. And, and as, as some of you may know, 
uh, the the efficacy rates for most most medications are just so poor because we're not we're not very good at segmentation. We're not very good at actually hyper targeting specific therapeutic agents for certain cohorts. And I think clearly with so much of this being digital uh, and this care being digital and this this and the data that's produced from that, I think there's a huge opportunity to do much more effective targeting just more broadly and then start to develop specific interventions or programs or treatment paradigms. Um, upstream that can that can ultimately then boost the efficacy rates for those medications in which case you know really everyone wins and we just haven't had very many conversations about that I, i'm hopeful in the future i think it's just going to be a longer a longer time horizon until we get there yeah and I'll, I'll chime in i haven't seen a single uh, concept of a companion a digital first companion program for medicine that i think reaches the end state of what could be done and i mean it, you know it's amazing that in most other areas, these high-value things that you buy have really neat digital counterparts. I mean, look at the, if you will, the companion app to your a Tesla, right? Com, you know, really complements the Tesla. Uh, you know, we've not we've not seen that, uh, you know, in pharma in ways where it could connect you with other patients that are on that therapy, um, really allow you to think thoughtfully about, you know, the characteristics of the dosage of that therapy, really how it, you know, uh, might uh, progress your health goals. You know, I think there's actually a lot of a lot of innovation to be done there that I've that I've not seen yet happen that might actually be really welcome, not just by patients, but uh, the industry writ large. I agree with that too. Instead of trying to get this pharma company to sell pure technology, go back to pills and shots, you know, and then how can we do it in a different way or supplement it with with digital? And I think you'll start to see more, uh, you know, direct to consumer type pathways with prescription meds, like you know with Roman or, or built into, to Omada or to ginger. And, uh, I think those are more, they're, they seem more down the fairway for pharma. You know, it's just a different channel or a different way of us getting prescription medicines to patients and getting them to use them versus this whole other thing, which I think will still come maybe, but that'll be maybe later. Maybe, um, I, uh, by the way, I think, uh, Tom Lee has told me that we do need some music for the after party. Uh, fair enough, Tom. Um, <laughs> or I think we need to be less heavy. I'm on East Coast time. This is getting pretty heavy, but yeah, <laughs> unless unless that's the intent. But this I'm is just getting uh, depressed. You didn't you didn't I need get, to get my, a drink. my rejection letters from uh, Sean Duffy is is uh, enough to be uh, setting the tone. Uh, no, yeah. I, I, actually, I, I do have a question for for you and Tom Span, who are both uh, repeat entrepreneurs. So you know what is you know on a more fun note. What is more fun when you like, what part of it is more fun? I should say when you have the company build second time around, when you're doing this, not once, but the second time and the third time in some of these cases. Timely, you got to go first, man. Well, I'm not sure it's fun. Um, you know, uh, I think you have to love it if you're going to do it again, but, exactly. um, you know, and uh, I mean, it's just like anything. The more times you do something, hopefully you get better at it. So, um, you know, uh, I think there are a few people, but most people don't want to do it again, <laughs> understandably. <laughs> so, um, so power to them too. I think, uh, I don't know, uh, thoughts or, uh, my, my first shot was in, was actually in the pharma side. So I got to work with Astra Merck when they were one employee, um, and I won't even say how long ago that was. It's was 30 years ago. Um, but I, you just learn what a small group of people trying to do something awesome can do. Um, and then I got the chance, obviously, to do it 
later and then uh, at Accolade and then uh, doing it now. And then I think this time it's all about um, you actually got to care about these families and these, you know, people are trying to, whose lives are trying to improve. Yeah. I think in, in healthcare, at least it takes a little bit longer. So there's only so many repeat cycles you've got. Um, but the market keeps getting better, right? Meaning there's more capital, uh, more opportunity. So not a bad place to invest if you're young, barring any crises or well, yeah. regs or pandemics. <laughs> I know that um, just being mindful of time, I know Tom Castles has been waiting patiently. So Tom, uh, maybe just quickly introduce yourself and then a question, thoughts, comments. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you guys. This is, this is great. This is actually my, my first uh, clubhouse meeting. So um, welcome for making it a good one. Um, uh, I guess I, I'm going to be a little uh, romantic about um, what you're doing. I, ha I had two really brilliant colleagues who are still brilliant, uh, Chaz Rhodes and Lisa Bilimovich, um, in the advisory board days. And they used to always talk about how the traditional health system makes um, people the object of their care instead of the subject. And I, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, how does it feel to have um, to have members, people who are trusting you and engaging with you, and being treated like the um, the subject of of their care? Because I think that's something a, a lot of people in the traditional delivery system long for um, and don't have. That's such a great point, Tom. Because I think. Um too many people view patients, consumers, whatever, as knuckleheads who don't know how to do the right thing. And these are really, you have to believe in them. They're actually really good people trying to do the right thing for themselves and their families. And um, when you get to that point, that feels good. And it causes you to do things like a second startup to try to help them another way. I love that. I mean, I, yeah, I agree. I think one of the most fun, most interesting and rewarding parts is, do, you know, user research or just insights that come from, from the people that we're working with. Cause you learn all this stuff every time about why, why, you know, you, you design this beautiful flow that, you know, you think everyone's going to follow and then, and then they don't and trying to understand why. Uh, and there's all these, these different reasons, right. But you, you learn these really personal intimate things sometimes that help you better deliver the service. Um, but then, you know, you, you do get these rewarding, you know, emails and you see data on, on how people are doing and it feels, it feels awesome. It feels like you get this a lot, like it's different than any healthcare experience I've had because they've been meant to feel a certain way. And, and all these companies, I think one of the things that's in common is coming at it and treating them like valuable users. And we need to figure out what the user needs and what they want. And I think that's the big main difference of the quote unquote digital health or health 2.0, honestly. Yeah, I, lo I love that. And I mean, you, you with digital, I think you can more easily structure really thoughtful interactions, either at a system or care professional level and people's goals. You know, what, what, do you, what do you want relative to your health care? And it's funny, many people can go years 
experiencing the current healthcare ecosystem without ever having those 10 minutes with a provider to really unpack goals, not in all systems, but in many. Um, uh, and that, you know, that is very, very welcoming, welcomed. And, you, you know, I think you can do that uh, in digital and more systematized way. Yeah, I love the question. I just add um, nothing like a pandemic to, to force uh, forces uh, forces all uh, to test things out. I, I, it was it was fascinating this past year to actually try out a number of products uh, from other other entrepreneurs in this space. Uh, you know, by necessity in some ways, from getting medications delivered to getting a you know primary care cons- consult online, and uh, it was a it was a great experience. I mean, it was it was pretty incredible. Um, and I, just, I think it was just eye opening for me personally over this last year. Um, just how how far I think we've come, and, and you know, there, there were some hiccups. There's some things we still need to work through, but uh, we're making progress. Thanks, guys. Okay. And and by the way, Sean, um, uh, in my rock health capacity, I thought that was an excellent answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Can I can I mind if I make a quick comment about that? If if I had to be disappointed about what hasn't progressed out of Health 2.0, I think all the stuff that we saw in the early days, you know. Uh, um, even going back before 2010, that is now kind of live and all the stuff that Julie writes about in terms of all the virtual stack stuff that's there. But if you think, go back to like daily strength and patients like me, I was expecting a much bigger sort of wave of patient-generated data and patient-generated solutions. And I know that, you know, that uh, uh, Sean and, and, and Karen and, and you know, uh, uh, Chris, your companies have done amazing work making it much more human experience for the patients. But I still think, you know, I was expecting a lot more to come out of that. Maybe I've just missed it, but I'm somewhat disappointed. I um, sorry, Chris, you about to say something? Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's true for sure. I I mean, if I go back to 100 plus, you know, that definitely came out. I was spending a lot of time in in, in both health 2.0 circles and then quantified self circles, and so a big part of that was tracking data and using data was going to make people more healthy. Our, our problem, right, is that it was all reversed. Like that was a, clearly a product in search of a problem, you know? It, and so I think a lot of the early, early things was, you know, came from the technology, like, what, oh, we can track this, like, what should we do with it? And I think the evolution over the last 10 years is that obviously that doesn't work. And so now there's just more focused solutions that are trying to solve a problem, but but you can look at even in like the wellness market, like some of these products now are way better than what we were trying to do in, in the past, you know, maybe not on the hard, hardcore healthcare side, but you have like Aura and Whoop Band and and some of these that are, they, they generate like good results, like people have, or, or levels using CGM. And so I think now you do have better use cases. We, we just kind of struggled, I think, with applying the technology to the right use cases early, early on. I also think there's a big piece of data that's starting to come out that I bet, you know, Sean's collecting at Amada and a lot of, you know, I see it certainly at Accolade and at Brightside, but um, it's all this contextual data that has huge impact on people's healthcare decisions, right? It's like, well, my mom stole my car, so I lost my breach up, so I can't afford daycare, so now I'm staying up all night and not sleeping, you know, those people don't have whoop bands. Um, and it's all those other things that are, um, not obviously medical that impact care, um, that I, I think companies are starting to get better at collecting, I think will make more of a difference on what Matt's looking for. I'd love to hear Karen on that, actually. I mean, because, you know, you look through the ginger kind of iteration, it was, you know, passively collecting data to understand depression and anxiety, right, based on passive signals. But it was sort of the 
I guess the use case or the business model. I don't, you know, it's just, it was hard back then. Yeah. I mean, I think it's separate. It's probably separated into two concepts, Tom. I think you're spot on that the more context we have and that context can come from your know, new devices or, or kind of taking advantage of existing data. That's just a byproduct of, of delivering care. Like we can use that to better inform care in the future, drive down costs, and improve quality. So like, I think that that is true in and of itself. And Chris, like you're describing, I think one of the lessons we clearly learned was that in and of, in and of itself was not a product, but as a, as a, kind of a, a key input into care delivery is, is hugely valuable. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm also hopeful, I think, someone was mentioning earlier, just how maybe some of this data is going to be more fluid and easily accessible. I think that's going to power more personalized interventions and just improve the efficacy rates of all of our products. Um, but that, that's the long game. I, I think that's definitely not something that, I mean, we'll, we'll see it in bits and pieces, but um, I think it's going to ultimately drive improvements in, in the long term. I mean, like Matthew, I'd look at all those old companies and I don't think any, any of them are wrong. Like all the ideas I think are right. They're, they're just, you know, the timing, maybe it's just timing and now they're coming back around. I think we're uh, bumping up on time here. Um, maybe one, um, just because we've got so many amazing founders here um, in the OG group. And then as I look at the audience, there's a ton of first time founders and builders um, you know, maybe just sort of, um, on the, you know, what's maybe what's one piece of advice you have for founders, or if we're, this is a, we're meeting again in 10 years, what do you hope we'll be talking about? Right. Um, because there's it, in some ways healthcare too, I think an early discussion, like doesn't change at all, but in some ways it's felt like so much has changed during the pandemic, especially. Um, so either one piece of advice or things we'll talk about in the 10 year clubhouse reunion, I'll pick on folks. So let's go with Sean first. Uh, so I, I think I can go, maybe I'll go toward advice. Um, uh, you know, so one, uh, you know, one thing I think is special about healthcare is I think there's, you're, you're more likely to find a community of other entrepreneurs that are willing to help just because it be, almost because it's hard and complex. So absolutely take advantage of it. I think the, the sweet spot for guidance would be like a, you know, a founder or a company, maybe that's a year or two years ahead of you. That's, you know, gives you a sneak preview to some of the challenges or, you know, or lean on, you know, either anybody on this panel here or anybody in the audience, uh, you know, anytime just for advice and guidance. I think you'll find folks readily willing to carve out time to help, uh, you know, saying that's, you know, don't, don't forget that you're, you know, you're not alone in, in unpacking the complexity here. Uh, Curran, let's go next. Yeah, I, I think a few of us referred to this earlier, but um, the notion of you know digital health being separate from health, I'm hopeful that in some ways we, we've got to drop the moniker and it's just part of one broader system and they're not two parallel kind of worlds that we have to straddle. Um, so I, I don't know I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think some of this is actually going to be a function of terminology and just mental models and, and thinking about this being kind of one integrated coherent approach. And I think we'll be much closer to that that worldview. Chris? Yeah, I guess I would just say like if you, yeah, advice would be if you're on the fence, just do it. It's, it's so fun and it's hard and worthy. And this is at least in the 10 years I've been doing this, this is by far the best time to do it where you have the ecosystem of different products and services and all the people and the funding. And then, you know, the, the kick, the kick through uh, of first experiences that COVID brought. Uh, this is just seems like a really pretty, pretty special and awesome time. So, so do it, start it or join something really early and do it. Tom Lee, if you're still there. 
Yeah, just a couple quick thoughts, uh, and thanks for hosting. Um, uh, advice uh, to most people, I just advise people follow the money in healthcare. It's counterintuitive, but that's how you're going to build a successful business in healthcare. Uh, and then reunion thoughts, um, you know, it'll be great all working for Amazon as one happy family. So look forward to working together. <laughs> uh, Tom Spann, to wrap it up. I'm looking forward to working for Amazon. Um, I actually, I was going to say the same thing. Uh, figure out who's paying for this and figure out how to create uh, great value for them. Uh, if you don't understand who's paying the bill not going to uh, make a lot of progress here. It's amazing. Um, thank you all. This has been a fantastic conversation and thank you all for staying so late. I know some of you are on the East coast and uh, this has been a fantastic reunion, even though we can't be in person. I hope soon we can be, but for now, this has been a phenomenal conversation. We will see you all next Monday, 5 PM Pacific. Thank you all. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you.